I'm Mike Wilkerson from twoguystalking.com, and you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Animal Academy Podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. One of the most important people in your pet's life is their veterinarian. Establishing a positive and ongoing relationship with a veterinarian is so important. Just as we should follow up with our own health care, our animals require the same kind of care and monitoring. Besides taking care of my pets over the years, my dog's veterinarian helped me identify potential issues, provided treatment when my pets were ill, had to step in for emergency care, and also provided support when faced with difficult decisions. I'm excited to have Dr. Wayne Boylat on this episode. He has provided excellent care to my pets for many, many years. Dr. Boylat, thanks for taking time to talk with me today, and welcome to this podcast. It's my pleasure, Allison, to be chatting with you. Feel free to call me Wayne. All right, I will do so. Thank you. You told me that you graduated with a doctorate in veterinary medicine from the University of Missouri-Columbia in 1990, and you're currently the managing veterinarian at the Veterinary Group of Chesterfield. That is correct. I've been at the Veterinary Group of Chesterfield for the last 29 years. And that's a very large practice. Yes, it is. We have seven veterinarians on board with a support staff probably ranging in the 30 to 35 range. That, that's amazing. And you've got, I've used your services for grooming, and I know you have boarding there also. And you do some contributions to different rescue groups or, you know, wildlife rescue or things like that. Yes, we've tried to go ahead and to help the community out in whatever way we can. And whether that is providing some services for the people at the wildlife organizations, whether that's the World Bird Association, whether that is some of the other dog-related or cat-related rescue organizations around town, we try to do our part. Well, that's, that's very much appreciated. Now, going back to you, Wayne, tell me why you decided to be a veterinarian to begin with. I had a unique childhood in that I wasn't that individual who wanted to be an astronaut nor a baseball player. <laughs> I grew up with a mother and father who raised Irish setters and showed them, so okay. I've always been around the dog world myself. I've always been interested in medicine and the standpoint that medicine is its like a puzzle or a riddle. Mm-hmm. and the ability to try to solve those puzzles or riddles have always intrigued me. So then the unique aspect of bringing in the love of animals into that puzzle-solving capacity was uh, an easy fit, and it, it just took off from there. That brings to mind you know, several situations where I've uh, brought different dogs in for different reasons, and I've enjoyed our conversations back and forth because it truly is a puzzle. Not everything is what you see at face value. It takes some digging sometimes. That is correct. Sometimes sometimes you're lucky and it is exactly the way you think it is. And other times it scratches a bald spot on the back of your head trying to figure out what the uniqueness is of that particular case. 
Well, and I know, uh, too, Wayne, that when I've I've called at times over the years, I've never hesitated to call <laughs> only because I know that even my littlest questions, you know, may le- lead to something else that are not so little. So it's important for you to have that information from a pet owner's perspective, I think, too, so you can put the pieces together. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that oftentimes if I, as a practicing veterinarian, listen to the observations that a client has, I'm listening to the individual who truly is the expert when it comes to that dog or to that cat. You can, as a pet owner, can look at your dogs or your pets and look into their eyes and see things that they're just not right. And somebody on the outside looking in that doesn't see those pets on a daily basis may look at them and not see some of those subtle expressional changes that could certainly be beneficial in pursuing looking for something that is going on with that dog or mm-hmm. cat. Mm-hmm. And we talked in a previous podcast, too, about the importance of noticing those subtle changes, writing them down, and really taking note and sharing that with the veterinarian, because over time, those are those are pretty important. Absolutely. I think a lot of things, when we look at our overall pet's health and their pet care, we tend to look for trends or changes that go on. And sometimes these things are very subtle and life becomes very complex and confusing. And sometimes those subtleties get lost in the shuffle of everyday life. And as we begin to recall them, either one, we don't recall them at all, or we may minimize them inappropriately, or we may maximize them inappropriately and potentially steer down the wrong pathway. Mm -hmm. So, Wayne, what is the best thing about being a veterinarian, would you say? I think that these days, a very common thread in veterinary medicine, as well as other professions, is, is to talk about something called your why. And basically, your why is, why do you do something? Why do you get up in the morning? What is your purpose in life? And I think that our whys continually change as we develop as people with our different experiences. But where I am currently, my why goes to something that I would refer to as the human-animal bond. And that is that bond that an animal presents, obviously, with that of a human. And it's a very, very powerful thing. So I view my aspects of veterinary medicine as anything that I can do to either strengthen that animal-human bond or to prolong it or to increase its quality is really what drives me to get up in the mornings and go to work. And that just goes to show that veterinary medicine is not just a focus upon the animal. There is a huge component of human interactions that Mm -hmm. come into play with it. Mm -hmm. And it's those human interactions that can lead to, as you and I have known each other over the years for such a, a... a period of time, it's those bonds and friendships that are just as meaningful as, you know, interacting with their pet. Exactly. And so I know that when I need to have an answer to a question, I certainly call you, but it may be a behavioral question in my dog. It may be a nutritional question, something besides what we think of or what some people think of is just going for your annual checkup and getting rabies vaccines or whatever. It goes above and beyond that. I I would agree with that. I think that many times veterinarians can be used as an all-purpose resource for all things animals. You know, our training through school delves into all the different facets associated with mental health, 
or physical health or even training capacities themselves. And I think that the veterinarian in some realms could be an underutilized resource for pet owners in order to get the best potential advice and or care or expertise that they might be seeking out. Mm-hmm. Are there certain challenges that you have in being a veterinarian? Well, I think that a lot of times people will ask, well, what is the hardest thing? And outside of you know certain procedures that you may do, one of the greatest challenges is that in this particular form of medicine, we're similar to pediatrics on the human side and that our patients don't have the ability to talk to us. And so that presents that challenge is that as we are also observing and interacting with that dog, we're looking for those subtle nuances to give us a clue to that overall mystery as to why an individual is under the weather or for the dog or cat or pet that is assumingly to the naked eye normal, not but maybe not even being normal, trying to identify some of those subclinical illnesses that potentially could be problematic down the road. Mm-hmm. I, I would think that another challenge would be you, you've got a patient, which is an animal, but then you also have a, a human. So it's that, like you said earlier, that interaction between all of you together and, and trying to make that work even when you're not necessarily on the same page all the time. Yeah, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly because most of our communication really is between human to human. We're mm-hmm. going to communicate to the pet in an instance of praising them, you know, telling them they're good, but the ability to go ahead and to take what we see from a medical standpoint and then to transpose that into a type of language that the owner can understand and help make medical decisions in the well-being of their pet is definitely a challenge. And in some instances, when the pet is very healthy, it's, it's a very easygoing environment. Everybody is happy. Everybody's upbeat. Nobody has high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. In some of those instances we have where it could be very, very life and death related in just matters of minutes. Obviously, blood pressure goes up, tension goes up, anxieties go up, and the ability to communicate with those individuals and try to maintain a level of calmness in an environment that may be nothing but calm is to try to relay that information to them so that they have the ability to understand what's truly going on. That's interesting, too, because you're having to really pay attention. Like, I'm a, I'm a therapist, and I have to do the same kind of thing when I'm working with clients and who may be discussing some very difficult situations, but I have to remain calm as we're talking. It sounds like that's something you really work hard to practice as well. I would agree. And so we have to be cognizant when we are communicating of, of our tone, our pitch, our body language. But as you most likely in your profession as well, we have to be looking at our individual and reading their body language and reading their tone and their inflections to see where they are in order to help them as well. I certainly don't consider myself a professional as I would yourself, but there are some areas of overlap Mm-hmm. between what we might be doing in an exam room and the things that you might be doing in your practice as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that engagement is really, really important 
in that and your approach. So I'm going to give you an example. I don't want to embarrass you too much, Wayne, but when I come into the office and you're talking to somebody else, you know, saying goodbye or hello or whatever, it's very welcoming. And I've never seen you have like a rough day (laughs) over the years when I've brought my dogs in, even when I know that it has been a rough day in the office. That takes a lot of talent. Thank you for those kind words. Do you, do you work hard at that, or is that just a natural for you? I think that the, the style of veterinary medicine is something that when you graduate, you have a tremendous amount of factual knowledge in your head. And then I think that it is a skill or a craft that you have to develop over a period of time. <clears throat> I do recall, interestingly so, that It was about 10 years ago, so I just happened to be driving to work one day, and it was was probably 20 years after having graduated. And just during the drive, I had the revelation that after 20 years of practicing medicine and surgery, interacting with all sorts of pets and animals and clients of all different types, I had the revelation that I think I've figured it all out. You know, there weren't anxieties about going, what's my next patient going to be? Will I know what to do? Mm-hmm. I was, there was this calmness that I, it just struck me as being odd and it just popped into my head, is that regardless of what comes in, I'm either going to know the answer or I'm going to know where to find the answer mm-hmm. or I'm going to know that this patient is best served by a specialist and I know where that specialist is located. So there is, at this stage of my career, there is a lot of calmness that goes on, and there's not a lot of anxiety in terms of self-doubts. It's not a cockiness, but it's a confidence that Mm -hmm. I should be able to handle pretty much anything that walks in the door and be able to do such with a level head. Mm -hmm. And that's very honest with people, too, Mm -hmm. because I can certainly tell if somebody comes across as knowing everything, but we're human. And there's always new things coming out. And I know you've said that to me as well as, oh, I'll check into it and let you know. There was a conversation we had that kind of stuck in my mind a long time ago is that I was feeling very badly about thinking about a dog that I had in the past when I was in my 20s. And the kind of treatment that I used because we were always going to dog shows. So Mm -hmm. I would... I don't know if you remember those, the flea and tick dips that we used to use all the time. Ooh. So it kind of gives me goosebumps whenever I think about that. But I thought it was in his best interest at the time to do it because, God forbid, he should have a flea or a tick on him. But looking back at that, it's kind of horrifying to me. And, you know, you had said something that made me feel better about it because we can't go back and think about what we've done because at that moment we did the best we could have done with the knowledge that we had. Absolutely. I think that it's very easy to go ahead and to look in the rearview mirror and second-guess the decision that we've always been thinking about. But it really isn't fair to ourselves. What we really have to do is when we are living in the moment or in the present, we have to realize we gather as much information that we can, regardless of what the question or the decision is going to be, And then we make the very best decision with that information that we have, knowing full well that we're making that decision, and at least in veterinary medicine, for the well-being of the animal that we're discussing. And then we just have to be good with that decision because it isn't fair to us as a human being because we don't have all the answers, and it's usually never completely Mm clear-cut. It's really not fair to us as a human to be able to go back and 
and to feel shame or to feel guilt about those things. We just know that we do the very best with what we have and, and we move forward. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And I work a lot with people who have lost their pets. And usually every time when somebody comes in, they have regrets over the decision they made and also for not catching signs and symptoms earlier. And we, we spent a lot of time just talking through that, the, the guilt that they feel and the fact that that's not fair to do to themselves and that at that moment they did do the best they could. Absolutely. And it's great to have services that you provide for people because it can be a very emotional and a very challenging time. The world is very challenging itself, let alone self-inflicted problems that we might place upon ourselves. So it's great to have avenues available for people to talk through some of those things with somebody who is a pet owner and has had similar experiences to be able to show uh, comfort and empathy. And I've been there many times myself, unfortunately, and I've done that to myself many times, unfortunately. And a lot of times I will ask you or the emergency room vet, whoever is taking care of my animal at the time, what would you do if this was your animal which is really helpful. I know it can't be the final decision, but still it's helpful to hear another person's point of view. You're right. And even even myself as a veterinarian, you know, I would tell people when confronted with that question that I wear two hats. And, you know, I have the veterinarian hat that looks at things from that logical standpoint. This is the data. You analyze the data and you come up with a conclusion. But I also own pets myself. And then subsequently that means I have to make decisions as a pet owner as well. And some of those struggles, as you have had personally, I've had some of those exact same struggles. The uniqueness that I throw into the mix is the component that, as the veterinarian as well, coming to grips that I wasn't able or capable of resolving the potential problem that I had in my own pet, knowing full well from a logical sense that there wasn't anything I could have done differently, but it still is a mental or an emotional battle or struggle that you have to deal with from time to time, too. Yes, exactly. A very difficult decision, and it's our animals are like family to us, so um, I let people know that when they come in also that they're faced with grieving, whether it be through an injury and the loss of what you're doing with your, your animal, or if it's um, a death, that we grieve like we do other things that we experience in life. Completely so. I think that an individual that does not have a pet or never grew up with a pet has missed out completely on that animal-human bond that we alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. But for any individual that has grown up with a pet or currently has a pet, they completely understand how their two-legged family members are just as important as their four-legged family members. Mm -hmm. Now, Wayne, you mentioned besides your practice, you also do a lot in veterinary surgery and reproduction and sports medicine as part of your practice. Can you talk a little bit about these areas of interest? I've always been interested in surgery. And so from a standpoint at our hospital, that is, I'm in surgery every day for a couple of hours, and so that is really a passion of mine. Having had, or having golden retrievers, rather, I like to interact with my dogs, and so when time allows, I like to be able to do competitive things, as you have done with your dogs as well, 
because I enjoy spending time with my dogs. And that competitive nature that I think that many people have inside of them, doing competitive sports with their dogs scratches that particular itch. Mm-hmm. Then the uniqueness of the practice and its involvement with canine reproduction is something that is very different from many other general practices that most people don't want to delve into the reproductive component. But that has been something that we have uh, definitely embraced and have helped many a people, not only through the St. Louis you know, metropolitan area, but clients all throughout the Midwest and the states as far as Texas and Mississippi and, and north and east as well. What do you enjoy about that, Wayne? Well, from a reproductive standpoint, it is very enjoyable to see a person's face light up when you tell them that their dog is pregnant. Mm-hmm. Or very enjoyable to see their face light up when they see their puppies. And the ability to go ahead and to perpetuate the breed of dog or a breed of cat or, or something like that knows that that's going to bring joy to other individuals when they become, when those puppies and or kittens become their pets themselves and just perpetuates that, that positive vibe that's associated with that bond between a human and its animal. On the, the side of the, the breeding aspect, I know that a lot of uh, local and outside of St. Louis uh, dog breeders use your facility for that specific service. Yes, we have, we have people coming in with all different shapes and sizes of dogs sometimes dogs that I've never even heard of before, uh, which is, it was really fascinating. Your dog comes in and you look at it and say, you know, I don't think I've ever seen that before. And then you ask what it is. I was like, you know, I've never even heard of that type of dog before. It just goes to show how many different varieties of pets that are out there. And it's, it's interesting to find out what, what that individual's intended purpose is. Mm-hmm. Is it a hunting dog? Is it a, is it a sniffing dog? Or whatever that might be. Sometimes they're just companion dogs. They're meant to sit on somebody's lap and provide joy and entertainment. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that keeps it really interesting for you, too. You bet. I think that in veterinarian medicine in general, being a little bit different from the human side, the human side is very, very specialized, um, which is great because you get expert care for sure. If you If you have a heart problem, you see a cardiologist. And you have a knee problem, you see the orthopedist. The uniqueness of veterinary medicine is that we sort of wear all of those different hats. If you take a look at any one particular day, I may have been an OBGYN. I might have been a cardiologist. I might have been an ophthalmologist. I might have been a pediatrician if I saw a puppy that day or a kitten. You're wearing all the different hats, and you are the jack of all trades, as opposed to just diving into one particular component of a body system. I bet that's incredibly interesting then. It doesn't make for a dull day, that's for sure. <laughs> well, and then on the other side, um, there's the sports medicine aspect, which I know that uh, you enjoy outdoor activities with your dogs, and the sports medicine kind of goes right along with that. Absolutely. You know, from a training standpoint, I've always been intrigued when you want to ask your pet do something, whether it's to sit, whether it's to teach them a trick, or whether it's to get them to jump over a jump. It's always been fascinating because we're asking oftentimes for our pets to do things that just don't necessarily come naturally, or they come naturally and we want to do to do something 
in a very unnatural manner. Mm -hmm. So it becomes another game or another puzzle. How can I have an animal do this and do it well and do it happy at the same time? So it's not about teaching animals to do something out of fear. It's about teaching animals to do something that is a game for them and it's enjoyable for them. They're enthusiastic. They're highly driven. They're having a great time doing it. But you can't communicate with them. So it's another puzzle or a problem to solve. And how do I go from A to B, not in one step, but potentially in 50 smaller steps in order to get that that pet to understand what I want them to do? And it's very rewarding, as you can attest to if you're running an agility course. The very first time you run an agility course and your dog completes it without any fault, it's an exhilarating high mm-hmm. at that point. It's like, I can't believe I just taught a dog to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's not something the dog was born to do. It's, it's really, really an invigorating event. It certainly is. And we talk in, in a previous uh, podcast with uh, Sandy Gans and Ginger and, and also Pat Caston about breaking things down into little steps. And so then the, the little steps add up to be the big picture, which is what you just referred to as finishing a course with you know a qualifying score and agility. It takes so many little tiny steps. And all of a sudden I felt a little bit overwhelmed because I've got a new puppy coming the end of this month. And I'm already starting to think about all those little steps. And first, it's going to be yep. housebreaking, but <laughs> 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 but then it is clicker training is what I'm going to start with, and mm-hmm. teaching him the contacts for agility. Mm-hmm. When you get a puppy, you most most people get puppies that are around eight weeks of age. The training process begins within hours of getting that puppy, mm-hmm. because the training process is having a bond develop between you and the puppy. The training process is developing a trust, you trusting in the puppy, the puppy trusting in you. And then it moves on to individual, whether it be sit or down or whatever it might be that you're looking to do, then it moves into individual nuances. But that beginning of trust and that beginning of bonding is almost instantaneously as soon as you soon as you hold that puppy for the very first time. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to be doing a lot of that. So <laughs> there will be a lot of holding and a lot of bonding. And uh, then we're going to do kitchen training, which we talked about in another episode, too, where it's just not mm-hmm. making it into a big deal, but trying to capture those little moments that are trainable and teachable moments. Absolutely. Having a pet is not a sprint. Having a pet is definitely a marathon. It's a lifelong journey. And it's something that can be you can learn and teach the entire part of that race itself. And it's not necessarily the accomplishments and the accolades that define success in a relationship between a pet and its owner. It's those little things, it could be the training itself. It's just those little bonding moments is what it's really all about, as opposed to the ribbons or the trophies or the plaques. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, though, I'm going to I'm going to be honest with you. And I totally agree with what you said. When you get in the middle of that performance, because I certainly had that performance bug, it's really hard to get off of it, especially when your dog has an injury. That was a Mm -hmm. a really hard thing when uh, a dog had had an injury to then all of a sudden stop and then start rehab. 
Yes, because it gets you it gets you off of your normal routine. Mm-hmm. So when you are when you are in the midst of the training and the competing, your timeline is very well defined. It's very well structured, and then instantaneously, obviously with an injury, they usually are very acute. What happens is that your entire schedule will change, and how you normally would interact on a daily or a weekly basis now you lose that. You lose the social components of interacting with the other humans and their pets in your training endeavors, and it is very disruptive. It is, especially, like you said, the the social part of it, too. If there are certain trips that you had planned or favorite shows that you wanted to go to, and you see all your friends competing and, and you have to stay home and do rehab, it, it hurts a little bit. Oh, it sure does. It's, it's definitely disappointing. We've talked about a lot here. It's time to take a break. We'll be right back with more of this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the voice box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Do you like what you're hearing during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast? If so, consider having your business, organization, or effort connect with me to see how you can sponsor or be featured inside this podcast. Visit my website over at animalacademypodcast.com and let's have a conversation. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with the Editor Core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Everyone, welcome back to the Animal Academy podcast. We're having a great conversation with Dr. Wayne Boylot. Wayne, welcome back to the program. My pleasure. So, Wayne, when you think about sports-related injuries, do you see these injuries frequently? And, and if so, what are some of the common injuries? Yes, we do see them. And I think some of the common injuries typically are going to involve around the musculoskeletal system. So that would include sprains. That would be strains. It could be soft tissue injuries such as cruciate ligament or ACL tears. A common injury in the agility people is a groin muscle injury known as the iliopsoas muscle. Mm -hmm. I think that those are just the tip of the iceberg as far as things that we see. And oftentimes when we diagnose those, we obviously will talk about treatment methods in order to get those dogs to feel better and then to get them back on their performance. But then we also have an opportunity to educate to make sure that the dogs that we're talking about are athletes no different than a human athlete. And if we think about the best method to stay healthy, the best method is to make sure we have lean body mass, 
we're well-conditioned, we're well-muscled, we want to make sure that we train smartly. We warm up just like a runner would warm up. We think about what the purpose is with each training endeavor, make sure it has a purpose, we have a goal, we think about what we're wanting to accomplish out of that training session, and then when it's all said and done, we make sure we do the proper things to cool the body down in order to go ahead and to do our very best to prevent injury. It's very easy in veterinary medicine to be reactionary, where we just sit back and, Allison, if you break the dog, bring it into me, and we'll fix it, and we'll send you on your way. But that is very antiquated in its thinking. The real key to veterinary medicine right now would be preventative medicine, not necessarily from a vaccination standpoint, but more so from educating people on what do you do with a puppy in order to have its bones and joints developed to the very best that they can to minimize injury, chronic or acute, down the road, and then to give them ideas on how to properly train in order to minimize injuries so that there is no downtime for them. So we'd rather be proactive than reactive whenever possible. Those are, those are really good points. And right before this podcast interview, I was talking to Mike a little bit about uh, the puppy that I'm going to be getting, and the breeder is having somebody do a confirmation testing, and then another person's going to do temperament testing uh, right after that. And we were talking about the purpose of confirmation evaluation and how that really is looking at the structure of a young puppy, uh, seven or eight weeks old, to see if there are any potential faults. If this dog is going to be doing agility and they have uh, straight shoulders, then you may do a different kind of training approach than if a dog is over-angulated in the rear or something or whatever that is. So it's looking at the structure of a puppy and then working to accentuate the strengths of that dog. And I would agree with that because I think that knowing that you're going to get a golden retriever, you're going to get an individual that if you ask it to do something, nine times out of ten, they're going to do it, and they'll do it as many times as you want to. And so the, the lack of desire is not going to be the problem. The problem is, is that when you have that dog that will do anything that you ask it to do, if we're asking it to do things that put itself at risk, then we're actually doing a disservice to that dog and we're increasing the likelihood that degeneration or harm could come about there. And then the same thing could be also said from the temperament test, is that if we want a dog to do A, and this dog doesn't have that ability in its repertoire, then we're probably not doing that dog a good service. So rather than take dogs and make them fit into a mold of what we want them to do, I think that what I've learned with my dogs is rather than have that preconceived notion that they're going to do A, B, and C, I begin to identify with that dog as it's growing up. What does this dog like to do? What are its strengths and what are its weaknesses? And try to put that dog into a position to succeed by playing on those strengths and looking to avoid those weaknesses. Kind of like with kids, right? Absolutely. If you have a child that doesn't like to play golf and you love to play golf, forcing them to go out there and play golf is not going to change their mind. So identifying what it is that they like to do and what, you know, and then build upon those desires is definitely the best way to go. And it's 
from an emotional or a spiritual standpoint, it's much better itself, too. And that's one of the values of having a breeder do the temperament test and for a breeder to also really know their puppies, which they, for the most part, really do, uh, because they're not going to put a very, very active puppy with, say, a retired older couple who doesn't have like a fenced in backyard or whatever that would need to walk it all the time or whatever the scenario is. You want to make sure you're setting them up for success. Yeah, absolutely. With the current herd of golden retrievers, the two youngest that I have right now, I I did not actually pick those puppies. Um, They were picked for me by the breeder. And that had been a new concept for me. And I'm completely sold on that, on that concept or idea now. Because this is an individual that spends 24-7 for eight weeks period of time. Mm-hmm. They know what those puppies are all about from a personality standpoint. And it's not just a 15-minute snippet when they have their temperament test. Mm-hmm. Because many different factors can influence a temperament test. And so the breeder that I have those two puppies knows that I like the hellions. Mm-hmm. I like the troublemakers. <laughs> I like the dogs that have a lot of enthusiasm per se and so if i have a dog that i can do things with that's the dog that i love and so they can look at those dogs and say well this dog's a little bit high strung to be a perfect one for wayne but like you said it wouldn't be a perfect dog for an elderly couple that would love somebody just to sit on the couch with them and mm-hmm. and just watch and watch uh television or read a book Exactly. And I love the Hellions, too. So I don't know what I'm getting myself into. But <laughs> well, bring it on. <laughs> I'll remind you of that a, a couple months down the road. All right. <laughs> because you've been so active in, in dog sports, do you have a favorite? Do you know what you enjoy doing the most? I think of all the things that I have done. So I have done agility and obedience. I've done tracking and I've done field work with the dogs. I think the, the, the thing that I am most intrigued with is tracking. And I know that you've spoken to Sandy Gans about tracking. Yes. But, you know, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting endeavor in that you're not teaching the dog how to sniff. A dog knows how to sniff. A dog knows how to use its nose. But what you're teaching your, is yourself in this particular instance. You're not teaching a task to the dog but you're teaching yourself that you need to believe in what your dog is telling you, and you have to trust in it. So it's a completely different form of training because we're having to train ourselves. And that's the part that I found the most intriguing because I was not a quick study. I was (laughs) one that was like, no, I know the dog is wrong in this one. There's no way they could be turning to the right here. Mm -hmm. And then I would have a human behind me that said, You should probably trust your dog because your dog is smarter (laughs) than you are. Like, oh, well, that's a humbling experience right there. (laughs) But and it's a leap of faith to say, all right, I'm not in control. The dog is in control of this. Where oftentimes if you're doing agility or obedience, the human is the controller. They're the ones that are driving the bus. Mm -hmm. But when you're tracking with your dog, you're just along for the ride. And I think that's what intrigues me the most. Well, and it's I've I've tried tracking and ooh, it is it is very challenging for those very things that you just mentioned. One of uh I'm just looking at some of the other things um that you said that you have been active in doing and I know that you've been active with Duo Dogs, which used to be Support Dogs Incorporated. Yes. Right. 
I have been a member of their board of directors for six years, but I have been associated with the organization longer than that from a veterinary standpoint um, and from a breeding standpoint consulting with them. So my current status with the organization is a board member, Mm -hmm. and I am on a couple of different committees and I would be the one who is in charge of their breeding program in order to go ahead and to reproduce either golden retrievers or Labrador puppies to grow up and to move into the service dog world. That's really exciting. It is very exciting. I think that when we look at the human-animal bond, Duo is an organization that has multiple different facets in what they do. They have a branch that will produce service dogs, whether those move into facilities such as courtroom dogs or whether they are individual placements for an individual that might have a physical limitation. These are dogs that are trained for two years of age potentially, and they are given free of charge to those individuals, whether that be a facility or whether it be an individual person, um, which is remarkably incredible itself. Uh, Another component of that, of which you are very familiar with, is the Touch Dog Program, Mm -hmm. in which you have individuals who have their own dogs trained, and those dogs move into facilities in order to visit hospitals or nursing homes or other facilities in which they can look to brighten the day of a patient or a person who's living in a facility or the loved ones of those patients themselves or even potentially in a hospital environment, the staff or the doctors or the nurses. And then finally, there is a component where individual owners and their dogs will move into schools and they have a reading program, uh, which young people who have some challenges with reading would begin to read to a dog because it's much less threatening than it is to that of a human being. So they are leveraging that human-animal bond and the strength that lies within that in many different facets to benefit humans in multiple arenas themselves. And they have a really robust training program. That they do. It's a training program that begins at eight weeks of age, and it's an organization that could not exist without the hundreds upon hundreds of volunteers um, that they have with them. But these volunteers begin when the when these Labradors or Golden Retrievers first have their puppies. And during the first eight weeks of age, this training and husbandry or, or taking care of the puppies is a process of which these men and women known as welfare helpers, they are with those puppies 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the first eight weeks of their lives. They are mm. never unattended. Wow. So they have fantastic care from the very get-go. After eight weeks of age, they move on to their their puppy homes themselves. And so a puppy raiser would be an individual who would take one of these puppies into their home. They're going to raise it. They're going to go to classes on a regular basis all the way up to roughly 18 months of age. And then they're going to give those puppies or young adults at that time back to duo which is a very emotional period of time after Ooh, you've I'm been sure. bonded and you've watched this eight-week-old puppy grow into an adult. They're going to bring those dogs back to the headquarters at Duo 
and then the exceptional training team that they have there begins to put on additional skills for those dogs, which could include things such as opening doors, picking mm-hmm. things off the floor. It could be helping an individual remove their socks or their shoes if they can't reach their feet. The skills that are placed upon these dogs are limitless themselves. That training process could go on for upwards of six months of age or six additional months. And then once they have achieved all those skills, the process of placing them with either individuals or facilities is then had, and then they move on out to their working forever home. That's a remarkable program. I've been to their graduation that shows who they were placed with as part of that teamwork because don't they also, once they're placed, they have to have more training with their new owners. So once once they're placed, their training continues, and then the monitoring of those individuals based upon health and well-being continues for the duration of their working lives. And that most likely is somewhere 10 to 11 years of age. And then those dogs are are just going to typically be pets of those individuals moving forward. Okay. But those graduations, it's amazing to see, and it's really about the human, but how that animal can literally transform an individual's life. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about. Increasing their ability to uh, be more independent in the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. It provides confidence. It could... There was, there was a young lady who was hearing impaired and had been recently married, and they had, they had doubts whether they should be having a family or not. So her physically, she was able to move around and, and do all sorts of things, but she was hearing impaired. And this dog was, uh, was trained that when it heard a baby cry, it would go and nudge the owner so that if the husband was not around, and if the wife was not able to hear the baby cry, the dog would alert her to it. And then subsequently, there was confidence that bringing a child into the world would certainly go ahead and not be as as potentially daunting Mm -hmm. as it already would be. That's incredible. I'm sure you have so many stories that you could tell about success stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. It just goes on and on. And though I've been to many graduations, everyone is different. But they, the commonality that they all possess is that they're changing people's lives all around the region. And in this, and Duo has also become a worldwide organization. They have had dogs being placed um, as far as the U.K. as well. So mm-hmm. they're changing many people's lives for the better all over the world. You know, something just came to mind is that because we're all having to stay at home more frequently – a lot more dogs are being adopted, and I think people are starting to value the human-animal bond, even when they've never had pets before. I would, I would agree. I can attest to that. We have seen a large uptick in new puppies and new kittens or adopted adult dogs through animal shelters or whatnot ever since the, uh, since the COVID event has occurred. And it certainly has been very uplifting to see that if an individual is able to bring that human-animal component together, mm-hmm. it does create a stabilizing force that mm-hmm. can help individuals get through some of the chaos that we are living during right now. Mm-hmm. 
I had talked to a friend about it's going to be interesting once people start returning to work, how their pets deal with the anxiety almost of letting go. So we should almost prepare for that now while everybody's at home. Well, we've we've seen one other phenomenon is that there was anxiety when the people started working from home because pets are definitely creatures of habit. Mm -hmm. So when a pet is used to being at home while people have gone off to work or to school, all of a sudden now the people don't go anywhere. (laughs) And so that is a change in the pet's environment. And so therefore that can be anxiety producing. We've also noted, unfortunately, that because people are at home, they've taken their dogs for many, many more walks. And many Mm -hmm. of these dogs are not used to that. And we're having people call my dog is limping. My dog Mm. has sores on his feet just because they have the ability to spend time with their dogs and they want to, but the dog wasn't necessarily ready for all that additional exercise Mm -hmm. at one time. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, as you alluded to, is that when there is a new normalcy that comes about at some point in the future, people are going to go back to work. And what has become the new norm that everybody stays at home will now be swept under the table, and the dogs will have to acclimate and adjust to life the way it was six, seven months ago. Right. You you said something about the anxiety when the owners are, are now all of a sudden at home. I noticed that because I do telehealth out of my house, and my Shelties stared at me the entire day. And yeah, it like, was, why are you here? Yeah, so, right? it was a little bit unnerving when I'm trying to, like, work, and they're just staring at me. And then <laughs> they would be exhausted, because I'm, like, infringing on their nap time. Right. Absolutely. You know, they, they are definitely those creatures of habit. And, and they don't do change very well. <laughs> whether that is change for the positive or whether it's change for the negative, change is change itself. Mm-hmm. And so you would think that, oh, my dogs are going to love it, that I'm going to be at home. <laughs> they will learn to love it. But at first, it's just not normal right. to be at home all the time. <laughs> They do know if I'm late feeding them dinner, though. So, Amen to that. <laughs> Wayne, one of the things that is common among everybody in the helping profession is called compassion fatigue. And we talked a little bit about the stress of being a veterinarian before. And I know that it's, it's huge in the veterinary profession. How do you prevent this from occurring in your practice? Well, I think that as a managing veterinarian, the first thing I try to realize, because it's really not just the veterinarians, it's anybody that works within the veterinary hospital can be predisposed, per se, to compassion fatigue. And so it's things that, number one, you create an awareness so people understand it. Number two, you make sure that from a managerial team, my hospital manager and I, we know that people have an understanding that the doors are always open. Right? And you can come in and talk about anything. And there's no judgment. There's no me trying to fix anything. It's just we were there to listen. We also have within the corporation that we're associated with is that if there is compassion fatigue that is creating problems from a mental health standpoint, there are avenues that they can reach out to people free of charge in order to go ahead and to have those discussions, Mm -hmm. to help guide them back to a better place. So it really starts with most things. It's about communicating with your staff to make sure, number one, it's okay to have those things. It's not something that needs to be swept under the table. It It is there. 
And you just have those conversations to make sure people, if they can identify that they're going down that slippery slope, can then begin the process of halting that and put themselves in a better position. Mm-hmm. How important is, say, outside having outside interests or hobbies for self-care? It is an automatic must. I think that to define yourself as an individual, for myself to say, well, I'm a veterinarian and that's what I do 24-7, I consider myself a very strong person, but I'm not that strong. So the aspects of having releases outside of veterinary medicine are a must. And I think that an individual that can explore those different releases then becomes a better medical professional because they are recharged, they are re-energized because they were able to walk away and then they're able to jump back in and they're better off for that. More balance, right? Absolutely. Life is all about a balance, for sure. Are there any specific hobbies that you enjoy for self-care? I would say in the last four or five years, what has brought me the most amounts of joy is the fact that I play in a uh, rock band. That's awesome. It's a little bit unique from the veterinary profession itself, but uh, that has been my greatest avenue to sort of get away from veterinary medicine. So what I find is that when my bandmates and I are playing, the ability to go ahead and to not even think about veterinary medicine but get lost in the music and just the camaraderie and the social component of that is hugely uplifting. And you're able to use your creativity in a different way. You betcha. It allows Mm -hmm. you to use the other half of the brain that typically Mm -hmm. in veterinary medicine becomes stagnated Mm -hmm. because you're not using that half of your brain and allows to give the analytical component of your brain downtime and it goes after that creative side. That's a really important point to make. And you said getting lost which is part of that mindfulness. You know, we hear a lot about mindfulness and getting lost in whatever activity you're doing to totally enjoy it without thinking about what's going to happen next or your to-do list or your grocery list. Absolutely. Well, Wayne, I have really enjoyed talking to you today. Did I miss anything? Is there something else that you'd like to share? No, I think that uh, I, too, have enjoyed the conversation, and I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to come on to your program and share some insight. And thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the podcast. My pleasure. Wayne focused on people's why, understanding the work-life balance in general, and from firsthand knowledge, I can tell you that his why shows tremendously in his work, his life, and his legacy. As we wrap up this episode, I have to ask you, the listener, what is your why? How do you show passion in the work that you do? And how does it help you build Not just an experience, not just a life, but your legacy. What is your legacy? Go over to my website at animalacademypodcast.com, fill out the quick web form, and tell me all about it. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White, licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy Podcast.